It's the hound of the Baskervilles. Come to call on us tonight. Uh, for the benefit of those of you who are wondering, this is not for women and children tonight. <laughs> you know who you are. Now it's no use to cheat. It's, we've got our eye on you. deep within us that calls out, that cries out for those dark, swirling moors, that looks out over the, over the Stygian landscape, that sees just the slightest filigree of horizon, and something tightens in the throat. There is a small storm a-brewing down there next to the spleen. And then the voice within calls. Louder, faster, more drums, more wine, more song, more women. <laughs> it's old rotten mine. <laughs> Nadja El Ascalani is a darker-eyed beauty with seven loves in this mystic and romantic city. And there lies the problem. A few months ago, Nadja got to thinking how unfair life was in Baghdad, where only men are allowed harems. <laughs> only men can have the harem. Why should not women enjoy the same privilege, she thought. Soon afterward, she fluttered her long, dark eyelashes at a strapping youth named Hassan. And he fell like an overripe date. And they were married. One week later, without a word to Hassan, she married Ahmed. On the third week, she took another husband. On the fourth, still another. And so on and on until, in the seventh week, she called it a day. Just as the rosy fingers of dawn were striking the mosque. She had good reason for stopping. Her little plan of marital bliss was all worked out long in advance. She told each of her seven husbands that she was a nurse and had but one day off a week. 
Thus she was able to flit from husband to husband, Monday through Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, flitting from husband to husband without anyone being the wiser. The oriental beauty fluttering her lashes. Until one day, one unfortunate day, Hassan chanced to walk into a coffee house where he met Ahmed. And they got to talking about their wives, as men do, of course. And Ahmed mentioned that life was tough for him because he saw his beautiful wife, Nadja, only on Tuesdays. Who? That is strange, Hassan said, for I see my beautiful wife, Nadja. Nadja, her name is too. Only on Mondays I understand your problem. They looked at each other for a long, hard look. And the jig was up. Suddenly, the story of Nadja's duplicity was out. Seven irate husbands took her to the judge in the big city mosque. And the judge, with the knowledge of Solomon, sentenced Nadja to seven months' imprisonment. One for each husband. Each of her husbands wants the beautiful Nadja back. And each visits her in jail on different days of the week. On her release, Nadja must decide which of the seven she will choose. We wait. Radio Istanbul has sent you salute to new woman of the day. <laughs> oh, my. Hello there, testing. Yes, very good. I'm very sorry that I had to bring that up at this time. But uh, that urge within us is deep and, and, and cannot be so easily driven out. Uh, I can remember a little story. I don't know whether I should again reiterate. Do you want me to tell again the story of May? Who stood in the recess yard of, of, uh, of the Warren G. Harding School one time and drove the entire male contingent second through fifth grade out of there ever-loving skulls. Do you want to hear about that? Now, that is a story which I, I... I very carefully husband. I don't often tell. Because it has overtones that many of us do not wish to face. Including Hassam and Ahmed. If you may. <laughs> you want to hear the story. All right, please, a little tom-tom music there. We will set the scene. And that is the scene that, 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 that could be a salute, really, basically, to the urge within all of us... <laughs> somehow, somehow to experience the succulent fruits of the bazaar. Yes, the great pulse that roars through the thunderous night of the soul that says somehow, somehow I must live the life of decadence. <laughs> Well, all right. One time I'm this kid, see. 
And, uh, well, it's hard to tell you about this. <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those great grotesque moments in life, which, uh, upon retrospect, you know, I think sometimes the wildest things that we see are the quickest things that we forget. Because they're so much out of context, you know, this, they, they just don't fit into the context of, of, uh, of the life that, like the time my friend Schwartz was driving his Ford one night on a, on a street, a dark street, when he had an accident involving himself in his Ford and an airplane. He had an accident with an airplane. And, and for months he hassled with the insurance company about the fact that he got sideswiped by an airplane. And I'm telling you the truth. He's driving along the street, and it's a side street on the south side of Chicago, and he's got his Ford convertible. And he comes around the corner, and here's a guy hogging the center of the road. And Schwartz starts edging off. It was a dark night. The next thing you know, something is banging on the side of his car. And he looks out, and he can't see out of the whole side of the car. He's all covered up there. And suddenly he is aware that numbers are going past his window. And it's going... And the whole thing stops. The whole thing stops. The car stops. He stops. He jumps out and runs around the other side. And he finds that the car that he had seen was carrying through the streets, or was towing through the streets, the fuselage of a Stinson Reliant. An airplane. And he had sideswiped Schwartz's car. Now, (laughs) you know, it's funny. Uh, That is a story that was a true story. And 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 for years after that, we had to remind Schwartz of that. You remember the time you were sideswiped by the plane? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's hard to believe. You don't believe these things. And they don't don't fit into the context. And so one time I'm this kid, see. And we had this school. Now, we all have in our minds a definitive school, the school we went to. Now, usually this school does not mean the high school. It usually, certainly doesn't mean the college. Whenever I think of school, I don't think of the college. The fantastic corporate image of, of the university that stretched over 27 counties, you know, and had 18 million graduates. But the school. And the school that I see in my mind was the Warren G. Harding School. Now, the Warren G. Harding School was very strategically located for to gain the most out of the educational process. It was located right on the edge of a swamp. Now, it was on the outskirts of town, and they had taken this big vacant lot. They built a school there, see? Well, there was nothing on the other side of the vacant lot except the swamp, the swamp that stretched endlessly all the way to the lake and the Gary, and it was a real swamp, and you see the swamp birds flying out of it once in a while, and you could hear the guppies and the newts and everything else crying in the darkness, and you could hear the toadstools growing, and it was part of the educational process, seeing great clouds of crows would fly past yelling. I can remember many an afternoon in school when, when I'm sitting in there, you know, you get in, getting this drowsing feeling. You're sitting there and Miss Robinette's up there in the front going, you hear the chocolate. And you smell the old lunches and you smell the old tennis shoes and the old lunch bags. And you smell the dried up ink wells and you smell all the kids, you know, and everything, the corduroy pants and you're sitting there. And you hear the squeaking of the chalk. And then all of a sudden, the whole thing would be, uh, would be brought to life. I would hear 4,700 of them would land on the roof of the school, right above us. We had this wooden portable school. You'd hear all the crows land up there. And you'd just hear, ah, 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 
And and these were crows. You know, they'd yell at her and holler, and they'd fly up a little bit and sit down again and squat. And you know what crows do all over the windows and everything. So <laughs> it, was, it was real life. Well, one day, in a quiet, quiet way, just it just grew out of that. Uh, we're all on our way to school, and I'm I'm walking along. I'm with Schwartz and Flick and Bruner, and we're is you know we're flubbing along and throwing rocks at the telephone poles and stuff on our way to school. And up ahead is the school, and you see all the kids milling around there. And it's it's, it's right after lunch. I remember it's just after lunch we'd gone home for lunch. You can see the kids around. A whole bunch of kids are up on the steps. But there was a funny thing. There was a big mob of kids, just a kind of a mob of kids all around there. One one mob up by the by the steps. On the sand, right next to the playground. A whole lot of kids. And Schwartz says, hey, quick, there's a fight, boy, let's go. There's a fight, wow. You know, kids are, wow, there's a fight. And we go running, and we, we figure this, we figured Alex Joshua is finally having it out with Farkas. And the, <laughs> you know, we run up there, and, and, but, the, but there is no yelling, no hollering. Just a bunch of kids all standing up with a funny look on their face. Well, we arrived into the bunch there, and right in the middle of it is this chick named May. I have never, ever, since that time, forgotten that name, May. It's a great name because it always has certain connotations to me. And there is May standing in the middle of it all. She has got her little sweater off, and she is plucking at the elastic band of her little you-know-what. She's going tongue like that. And she's standing there, and, and you, can, you, can hear, you can hear the tom-toms beating, you know. You can see the guys are all looking there, and the chicks are looking, and once in a while, one of them hollers, Go ahead, May, take it off, go on, baby. And she's just looking at us with her old little eyes, looking all around us. And she pulls off, you know, she just like that, pulls her skirt up a little bit. And she has these garters, you know, with the black socks. And she goes, like that. And she takes one of them off and starts peeling it down. I was in about the third grade. Schwartz was in the third grade. Flick was in the third grade. May was in 4B. Oh, boy, this is the big time. Hey, take it off, baby! Whoa! Whoa! It was the greatest recess we ever had. Somewhere out there, there is a mother, no doubt, with a tiny brood, a mother named May, who possibly doesn't even remember that afternoon under that arching sky of the great Midwest, next to the swamp, with the sky filled with thousands of crows crying overhead, Take it off, baby! Speaking of the lady who is no better than she should be, this is W.O.R. A.M. and F.M. <laughs> New York. Hit the button there, Charlie. I'm approaching the cave of the 2,500-year-old brewmaster, and oh, I wish you could see him. He just came home from his night out square dancing, and he looks ridiculous. He's got on a big hat and spurs, and he has guns strapped practically everywhere. <laughs> uh, sir, is square dancing the original form of dancing? The first dances, you know, were war dances. Indians, I know, had war dances. Yes. Could you demonstrate how those went? Brewmaster is dancing around and throwing his head in the air. And I'm making all sorts of violent gestures. That's a frightening dance, sir. Wow, that was exciting, sir. Just watching you made me thirsty for Valentine. How do you feel? I feel thirsty for Valentine, too. Why should I kill a good job for you? If you want to start living a life that's livelier, live it with spirit. Valentine beer. There's more spirit to it. There's more spirit to it. Uh, 
Oh, gee, everybody looks so funny. Here's how is okay. Can you relax in there now? All right, very good. Uh, let's uh, relax here for a minute. We'll do the Rover commercial right now. A magnificent automobile. And uh, last night we read an ad, or at least part of an ad, from Punch Magazine, which is an English magazine. They are probably the toughest people in the world as far as criticism of automobiles are the British. Now, that is not to say that all the cars that the British make are the best cars in the world. Not by a long shot. But they are extremely tough in their criticism. And uh, for years, the Rover has been unquestionably one of the two or three most honored and respected cars in England as well as throughout most of the world of motoring. And if you have never seen a Rover, that does not mean that there aren't many of them around. It means really that this is an aficionado's car. And uh, one of the most interesting cars on the road today, and probably in the next four or five years, will be the most copied, certainly the most studied, is the Rover 2000. Uh, undoubtedly, you've seen the great Rover, uh, Land Rover ads, which are very funny, the ones about the, the Land Rovers equipped to knock over rhinoceroses and so on. <laughs> and, it, and it is, it's, it's probably the most famous uh, land car that is used for safaris and so on in the world. And it's made, this Rover 2000 is made by the same company. It's a great machine, and if you'd like to see the Rover 2000, which at $4,000 has been compared to the Rolls-Royce, I suggest you see your Rover dealer. That's the Rover 2000, and there are hundreds of good dealers throughout the whole eastern seaboard area. Okay? Fine. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> now that we're back here in real life, the... Uh, the the uh, I, I suppose most of the time we we uh, uh, trying to put something here into words that are unputable into words. I suspect that's why we we have music. You know, I think I think many of the art forms that we have, which are unexplainable, you know, there's no no way to explain why it's fun to listen to somebody hit a drum, or why it's great to hear something plucked like a piece of string that's been stretched. No, no other animal does that. Uh, no other animal, as far as certain animals like bears, will sit around and they'll hit a hit a log. But usually, these are directly related to mating instincts or one thing or another, and they have nothing to do with what we think is music. You know, birds don't sit around and say, "Gee, doesn't Charlie sing good? Hasn't he got a great upper range? Listen to him. He really listen to that. Wow." Fantastic. Listen to that trill. No, no. What Charlie is doing as he's hanging to his little his little twig there, looking out at the rest of the world, is telling the rest of the world they better stay the devil off. This is his little territory. And occasionally he will burt it out. You know, that does not mean he's happy or he loves the world. That means, get out of here, he yells. And uh, the rest of the birds of Charlie's type recognize that this is Charlie's little territory, and they yeah, they lay off, or at least this is one theory of bird songs. Uh, bird songs. I, sp I suppose it's a lot more complicated than that. But nevertheless, this is the primary reason that birds yell is to keep their to keep their territory clean and clear. You know, they also say this is one of the reasons why lovers sing. They say it's a very peculiar. Parallel that, <laughs> that that lovers sometimes, you know, the the traditional way of expressing love is through the love song, and uh, this goes on has gone on for countless generations, centuries, 
And they say that it's very closely related to the same thing. Get away from my territory, Mac. You mess around with her and you're going to get one of the eye. You know, and he's standing with his, with his guitar in one hand and his brass knuckles on the other one, you know, and he's ready to go. But this is, this is one, one theory. Now, uh, I think that the, that, the, that the urge to express yourself in these peculiar things is uh, something that, that we all have in one way or another. Have you noticed the people who hate music or who hate poetry? Anything that has song attached to it. Now, by song, I mean an attempt to express the inexplicable. Uh, somehow, I suspect, are fighting against the inexplicable within them. They don't like that, that, that's that little itchy feeling that they get when they see the belly dancer up there. Uh, you know, that... And uh, they turn out a poster about it, or they deliver a ringing sermon from the pulpit about it. That's, uh, <laughs> they don't like that feeling. It's funny. And yet other people like it tremendously. They, they dig it. They, uh, the, the louder the drums, the more the song, the, the quicker the wine flows, the happier they are. Now, these two kinds of people... Uh, have forever been fighting it out. They've been fist fighting on the barricade since since the beginning of time, and I I, I can just see the first the, the opening scenes of it, that the, the opening the awakening of the libido, the awakening of that sonata appassionata <laughs> that flows through some of us, not all of us, but is latent in the others. I can see that moment when mankind divided into the two kinds, the two kinds of people. The guy that sat down there under the basement steps and read the stuff, and the guy that wanted to censor it. There had to be two kinds. There had to, had to be a moment when this happened, you know. And there they were. This is one of the great, one of the great unsung moments that converted man from a crawling turtle, that converted man from that sniveling amphibian that brought him from deep down in the dark depths of the primal sea and now brought him full circle to the whole scene. To us. Walking around, scratching, spitting, sneaking sidelong glances at the at the National Enquirer, you know. I killed seven husbands with my axe, that kind of stuff. Or forty nine men made the scene right. Oh wow! You know, just just keep walking on. <laughs> you, but that kind of stuff, you know, you'd look at it and you pretend like you don't see it. Can you imagine these very official people like Dean Rusk going in, you know, and they're going to buy a a copy of uh, Commentary. Or they're going to buy a copy like the International Press Review. And they see all these things up on the up on the newsstand. And way over here is a magazine called Wowie Pooey. And there's a chick looking out, and you know, she looks like a big pile of advancing beach balls coming right at you, you know. Does he steal a little glance? And when he steals a little glance, does something go racing through his mind? Something, you know, like, oh gee, was wow. How did I happen to become one of the official people? Where along the line did I suddenly grow a high collar? How come? Gee, miss, why can't I go through the subways and write stuff on the walls with chalk like them other guys, huh? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I'll have a uh, copy of Atlantic Monthly, please. The one with no illustrations, if you please, sir. Rasmus and the Rudy, Rudy, too, 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 too. Oh, I'm going to drink, I'm going to drink muddy, muddy water with my feet slammed in the sink. <laughs> I'm going down, 
I'm going down to that old river bank. I'm going to drink deep. And you're going to be sorry, baby. Because I'm going to drink. I'm going to drink muddy water. Till I just don't float no more. Yeah. Well, this, uh, this is a marriage that is not easily explained. And, uh, I remember as a kid, you know, I wonder how many of you remember these little moments. This is not nostalgia, so don't immediately think, oh, gee, he's going to talk about one, one time when he was a great kid, you know. It's nothing to do with nostalgia. It's, a, it's, if I see one more novel that has on the front of it this announcement, a searing story of one young man's growth into manhood and his discovery of sex. Oh, gee whiz, wow. If I see one more novel like that, and yet practically every... Have you noticed that women don't write those novels? You have yet to see, I have yet to see a novel, a searing novel of a young girl's growth into man... No, her growth into... (laughs) You just don't see that kind of thing. Apparently, apparently growing into manhood is an incredibly traumatic affair. For most guys, <laughs> else they would not be compelled to write endless, sweaty paragraphs about it. And uh, part of it, of course, I think, comes from comes from something I, I don't. I really don't believe that women go through. I just don't think they do. If they do, uh, it is not publicized. Uh, they don't talk much about it. But I wonder how many of you remember when you were kids. I'm talking about male types here. I'm specifically relating it to the male type. Remember, uh, one little kid sitting next to you, see, he's about two seats behind you. He says, hey, Charlie, hey, give me a hey, look at this, Charlie. And he passes you this book that has the dirty part marked in it. And you look, wow, wow, and you don't understand it. You know it's the dirty part because the only thing he ever gives you, those uh, books with the dirty part marked. And you sit there. And, and uh, you know, wow, wow, wow. And it's all over the room. And, and, and you find yourself out there next to the swings. There's three or four of you standing around by the swings. And, and uh, all, all, up comes old Al, see. And Al hits you in the back with his mitten. And says, hey, hey, listen, hey, Shep. Did, I, did, you, did you hear the one about, see, this guy was a, a, you know, he's a salesman. You know, like a fuller brush man, see. And, and he's going around. And he's going up, and he comes to this place. You see, one night it started to rain real hard. And uh, he's in his car, and his car broke down. And so he comes up. He's by this farm. <laughs> farm, see? And he comes up, and he knocks on the door. And the farmer comes to the door, and the fellow says to the farmer, Gee, I am stuck. My car does not go. Uh, I am looking for a place to stay tonight. And the farmer says, Why, yes, we have a place for you to stay tonight. However, you'll have to stay with my daughter. And <laughs> and it goes on. You know that whole scene? <laughs> And you're standing there. Now, I, I, I say that there are two kinds of guys. There are guys that tell stories, and then there are, there's the other kind of guy that stands around with a funny look on his face who is being told the story. And they continue throughout life. They continue throughout life. Uh, that, that, that little Al at the age of nine standing there telling the story next to the swings on the playground is also still telling stories as he sits at the university club with his face kind of red. He's on his third brandy. And he's sitting there and he's being a fantastic boy. And he's like, oh, boy, you're gonna... did you hear the one about the Hungarian and the bow-legged dachshund? 
And the bartender over on 3rd Avenue, well, I'll tell you what happened. You see, this priest come in, and he's got a bow like a dog. See, it's a bow like a dog's one. And there were three Hungarian bartenders, and... Oh, boy. <laughs> and you sit there, and you don't know whether to smile, or you don't know whether to laugh. You don't know what to do. And you just sort of sit there with a funny look on your face. And there you are. You're still in the same position you were when you were back on the on the playground. You know what I mean, Bob? You don't look like a storyteller. You know what I mean? You're in the same position that you were when you were a kid in the playground. Now, that doesn't mean you're embarrassing by it, but there are some guys who flaunt it, and there are other guys who do it. And the flaunters are the guys that tell the stories. The other guys are the guys that believe in action in general. You know, uh, this this uh, this is something I don't suspect that women go through too. I don't, I just don't think it's a woman thing too much. Uh, yeah, listener says he's still hearing that story. <laughs> well, I can see old Og. I can see the first time that it broke out. Old Og, you know, he's sitting down there. He's scrunched down on the shores of that antediluvian lake, and and scrunched down next to him is Charlie. These two ancient men. This is even beyond the, this is way before, way before Cro-Magnon man. This goes way back to the very earliest man. He still had a fin on the back. Yeah, he's sitting there, he's got the little fin sticking out. Then you can see his gills moving a little bit. And his eyes are kind of wall-eyed, big red circles around them. And uh, he can go any direction. You know, if, if, if I think if one of the trees had made a, a quick jump at him back in those days, he could have gone right back and become a newt. He just could have just cleared right out. I suspect that the very day that man crawled out of the lake, the first time, when he began to make that transition between being an amphibian and a land, air-type creature, that if it had rained bad that day, or if it had been a big snowstorm, it would have been all over. He'd have just said, oh, wow, what the heck with this jazz. And back he goes down there to lay next to a rock where the old tires and the boots are. <laughs> and would have fooled the rod down there. You realize how close we came to being the thing that people fish for rather than the thing that is doing the fishing? Isn't it great to, to sit out in the lake and put down a, put down a hook with a line and fish for other things? How would you like to walk one day, you're walking around on the street, and you see dangling from the cloud, you see a big thing coming down, and on the end of it, there's a bunch of Christmas tree presents. <laughs> you know, it's just hanging right there. It's got maybe maybe a couple of $25 bills, you know, are hanging there. Or maybe maybe there's a new fielder's mitt or something. Or a, or, or a phony Mustang is hanging there in the middle of the air. Or maybe a, a phony Ferrari. It's just hanging there, and, the, and there's a sign on it that says, free, take it. It says, free. And uh, you're with your friend. You say, hey, Charlie, what do you think this is? Hey, look at this, Charlie. Look, it says, free there. It's hanging right down in the air. He says, hanging in the air for crying out loud. Let me see. He looks up, and the, and the thing goes way up, 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 up. The, it's, it's into a cloud somewhere. He says, that's a Ferrari. He says, yeah, it sure is. Look at that. It's a red Ferrari. That's a, that's the Gran Turismo Ferrari. The science is free. Take it. And Charlie says, oh, "Not me, man. There's a catch to it. Oh no, ain't gonna get me that way." <laughs> I said, "But gee whiz, I don't know. I'm gonna take a look at it. You know, you never nothing venture, nothing gains. You know, crying out loud. That's you find yourself edging up to it." 
And you look at it, and it looks great. It's, there it is, big red Ferrari hanging there, right in the middle of the air. It's about a foot and a half off the ground. You look at it, it says, free. Take it. It's free. It's yours. <laughs> and back of you, about ten feet, Charlie said, look out, Mac. Don't fall around. There's a catch. <laughs> Gee whiz. And you walk around to the front of it, and you spit on the tire. Hmm. You could smell the leather now, you see. You could even smell the paint. <laughs> the sign on the front says, what are you waiting for? Hmm. Charlie says, ah, 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 ah. And you go to the other side. And the other side has a sign on it that says, don't listen to him. It's yours. <laughs> And then you see other guys begin to come towards you. There's other guys coming out of the bushes. They see it too. And then all of a sudden, at that last minute, that last minute, when you see five or six guys coming out of the hardware store, getting ready to grab, you say, Come here, baby, it's mine! And you jump in and whoa! 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 Up you go. Up and at a cloud, and 30 seconds later, you're on a stringer. <laughs> and you see this fantastic creature, so big you can't even imagine what it is. It's just a gigantic creature, and you see in its enormous claw, it's got this phony Ferrari, and it's putting it on the hook again, and is lowering it down through the clouds. Holy smokes. You could. Well, how do you think them sunfish feel, Dad? Have you ever laid on, on, a, on a rowboat and looked down into clear water? When you have, a, you have a fishing line hanging down through that water into that green darkness, and you can see the weeds waving back and forth down there, that golden brown, that, that luminescent world, and you see a school of perch come along. There's maybe 40 or 50 of them. And they just come along. You can just see them flash a little bit. You see shadows. And there in the middle of it all is hanging your night crawler. Big, pink. Just dripping. Smelling like new paint. Smelling like leather. Smelling like a new Ferrari. And on the side of it's a little sign that says, Take me. <laughs> I'm free. The old perch come along. I've watched them by the hour. And there's always two or three who cannot resist. And the others sort of hang back with their little gills and their little fins. Going, they look. And you can hear their mouths going. And they look. And then they go. They skitter backwards. They hang in the air. And then. Then they go into the weeds and look out. But there's always two or three that come up and go. They touch it. And then you see coming out of the weeds to the right, another school of perch. And sure enough, one of them babies comes along. The first one, he says, uh-oh, here comes those other guys. I'm going to grab it. And then you... He's down there at the end of that line. And you just gradually pull it up. 
Suddenly he's in the beautiful ambient air, something that he has never tasted in his life before. That great smashing sun crashes down on his red eyes, and some enormous creature, 14 million miles across and 74 million miles high, with a red Ferrari in its hand, slowly disengages the hook. Down comes the stringer. In goes the pin through the gill. And a second later, he's back in the water. At the end of a chain, with 13 other perch who were looking for a new Ferrari. Free. And all 13 there. What was it? What is it? Hey, Fred! There's a thing got me here! And one thing I've noticed, all the other perch down there on the bottom of the sea never even look up at the others on the stringer. They never even notice. They never even seem to miss them. They just swim back and forth. And then you lower your line back down again with that big fat succulent worm and you wait for another Charlie. Hi, Charlie. How long has it been since you've been reeled in? Well, I can picture Og. Poor old Og and Charlie, the first two sitting there on the antediluvian shore, looking out over that ancient lake. Sex had not been discovered yet. Not a bit of it. Just something happened once in a while, in the dark. But sex had not been discovered. Charlie and Og scrunched on. You can hear their kneecaps popping once in a while. And all they ever did was every millennia or so, one of them would get up. That's his way of saying, I get clams this time. You next. And down to the shore he would go. His great splayed five-toed feet digging into the ancient mud, the clay, the fossils of their ancestors. Now he peers into the water, reaches down. Clem. He fills his arms full of these succulent bits of protoplasm. The clam turns in the watery primal sun. And scrunches down next to his friend, Charlie. And they continue to look out over that gray fastness, doing nothing but sucking clams. And then one day it happened, out of the blue, like a bolt of lightning. A large cave lady from two caves down. They didn't even know there was such a thing as a female or a cave lady. They just know that she was kind of bumpy, but different. She's down by the shore, washing out a fur and eating a clam. 
And suddenly she turns around and the light just caught her right this time. The wind somehow was proper. Her hair billowed out for just a brief instant. And her fur slipped strategically at the precise proper moment to turn it all into what it is. And she goes up the shore and slowly, ah, this is the first time it happened. A great turning moment in man's career towards who knows what. Ah, slowly turns. Charlie continues to stare forward. Og follows that lumpy form up the shore towards the cave. And suddenly, without any, without any predisposition, without any pre-knowledge, a sound, a primal sound that comes from the depths of his being. Ooh-wee. Ooh-wee. It was the first time man had ever whistled. At a chick. Charlie thought about this for seven or eight years. The reaction time was very slow. And then it finally soaked through. And with that, he turned and hit Og in the mouth. Bergawa, dirty mouth. And the whole thing started. The swingers were beginning to split off. The next century... Og moved to the other side of the lake. And ever since that time, Charlie has been censoring him and calling the cops. And Og has been hiding under the basement steps, reading the smudgy books and watching the bad films and hollering, They split and forever and ever, the whole thing began to fall into place. It was the beginning. It led to many things. It led to the Ed Sullivan show. It led to Billy Graham. It led to those little guys they keep arresting down here on 42nd Street and throwing in the paddy wagon. It led to Fifi LaBelle. It led to Beauteous Nadja, who spends her time in Baghdad marrying Hassan and Ahmed. It's led to almost all of it. Norman Mailer. It's led to the Canterbury Tales. It led to the Decameron. It led to the calendars. It led to who knows where it's going to lead us. It may even lead us to Saturn in the eternal search. Remind me to tell you the story about the time this guy, see, was driving on this lonely road one time and he had a flat tire, see. And this girl comes along and uh, he says to her, Gee, you know, I've got a flat tire here and I'm stuck. And there's no place for me to stay tonight. And you know, you never guess what she said. Remind me to tell you that story sometime. Oh, it's a great story. See, she had a... Her father was a farmer, you know, and they had...